Amen. There are very few areas in our lives today where we are prone to claim the right to autonomy or privacy, like the area we are reflecting on this morning. Um, the area of our lives that has to do with our, our sexual desire, uh, sexual practices, sexual ethic, very few areas where we, we, we feel the need to say that we should have absolute authority like that one. Uh, it's, it's common to hear people uh, retort or assert that um, it's none of your business what I do in my bedroom type thing. Um, and and to, to want to keep that to themselves. Well, um, it's not, I'm not interested, I may not be interested in, in, in what you do there, but evidently uh, God is, as we see Jesus Christ addressing that very issue. Um, evidently, um, no part of our lives is to be kept solely for ourselves or is away from the gaze of the living God. Um, and, and I said last week that when it came to this section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus Christ is just dealing with his law and he's, he's trying to demonstrate the superiority of his law, uh, it's not very obvious what the logic is in the, um, the, the topics that our Lord has chosen. Why has he chosen to, to deal with initially anger and murder, for example, and then why has he chosen to deal with lust today and then divorce and so on and so forth? Uh, it's not hard to, it's not easy to to determine a, a clear logic there. What is certain, though, is that one of the commandments Jesus Christ chose to address, and he perhaps could have chosen many other ones to, to demonstrate what he's attempting to demonstrate, that he, his, law, that his kingdom is a kingdom that has laws, commands, and that he commands, he's the one that gives those commands, uh, and, and, and his, his kingdom is superior in righteousness to any kingdom in the world. Well, he could have chosen a variety of um, other commands to do so. He could, have, he could have left out the command we look at, we're looking at this morning, but he doesn't. He chose to address the seventh commandment. He chose to address after the sixth, the seventh. He didn't shy away from this subject. And that maybe on the face of it just refutes a claim that you might hear made from time to time that Jesus Christ didn't have a lot to say in the area of, of, of um, sexuality or sexual ethics, or that Jesus Christ was, was far more lenient um, than, say, the Old Testament when it came to the area of sexual ethics, or that Jesus didn't attempt to regulate this area of our lives, that he, he, he brought grace and mercy and so on, but left this area to ourselves. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, and this passage indicates that, that Jesus actually lays claim to this area and speaks about this area and lays down an ethic and a, a, a view of this area that we may find conflicting with our views, our beliefs. What is interesting, however, though, is that Jesus Christ is not even at some level denying the privacy of this area. Right? He's not saying that he doesn't understand there's a sense in which there is something private about this, at least between men and women and men or human beings that there's a, that this is a private that there's a private element to this area the bible acknowledges that jesus christ is not denying that either he 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 actually when he um, when when he unfolds this seventh commandment he, we're going to see that one of the fundamental distinctions about how he approaches the subject he says is he deals with the area of desire 
He says, actually, to, 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 to the violation of the, of the seventh commandment affects the place of desire. Now, the thing is, desire is something that's private. You know, desire is not like um, the actions that you can see. You can, you can see me doing things. You can see my physical actions. Desire is something private. So Jesus Christ acknowledges that this, this, this affects the private life, the, the area of life that is often hidden from people, other human beings, but it's just not hidden from the face of God. This area is not hidden from God. So God searches the heart. And so we see Christ instructing an area, legislating in an area, commanding in a, in a, in a, in a part of our lives that we are often minded to think is a secret place. It's not secret. It's not, it's not hidden from God, though. There's no secrets from God. I, I, and God legislates in that area and God expects purity in that area and so Jesus Christ is going to go on to demonstrate that he, he then has the authority to control and legislate in that area and the, the, the point being as the supreme lawgiver, as the king in this kingdom Jesus Christ has absolute authority over every area of our lives right to follow Jesus Christ is to recognize that Jesus lays claim. For those who are his disciples and for those who are his followers, Christ lays claim to every single part of their lives. So the um, hymn, the old hymn, quite helpfully says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Every single part, right? Everything to Jesus. That's the only way to follow Jesus Christ. Um, and this is a commandment that re- reminds us that, reminds us that, um, that you can't, compartmentalize a part of your life and say, this is not, I, I don't care what Jesus says about this. Um, not even the, the realm of your desire, what you want, your appetites, that comes under the authority of, of Jesus Christ. Um, and so we, we, we look at that today. And so Christians are not merely bigoted or old fashioned or uh, they're not simply uh, uh, being intrusive when they address this area in their lives, when we address it from the pulpit, when we preach about it, we're, we're, we're reflecting the authority that Jesus has over our lives. Uh, and to, to look at this this morning, though, before we come to the Lord's table, I'm going to use the same, it's the same, uh, same outline that I used last week. So if you're, if you're taking notes, apologies. If you took notes last week as well, it's nothing inventive. Um, but um, I'm going to use the same outline and say that in unfolding this part of his law and his kingdom uh, and in demonstrating the, the greater righteousness of his kingdom, Jesus Christ uh, does similar things to what happened with the, what he did with the law of, of anger like we looked at last week. He challenges our understanding of the sin of lust or, or of sinful lust. He challenges our understanding of that, of lust. Our, our, our understanding of adultery is what, is, is what he challenges as well. How do we understand um, the way to do right in the area of, of sexuality and, and sexual uh, ethics and, and, and all of that? He then challenges um, our understanding of the seriousness of the sin, right? He, doesn't, he challenges our understanding of the sin itself. What we, do we understand what the sin is? And by implication almost, anyhow, in doing so, Christ is always challenging our appreciation, our understanding, our awareness of the seriousness of the sin. And then he challenges uh, us to seek the solution 
right? Not to, not to uh, rest in our sinful state. He challenges us to seek the solution to our sinfulness. Those three headings. Firstly, then, Jesus Christ challenges our understanding of the sin of lust. You have heard that it was said, but I say, right? Jesus Christ says to these, these group of people he's speaking to, says to these group of disciples, to these, this, this congregation, this audience, very often folks have done this with the seventh commandment. So Christ basically verbatim quotes the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Exodus chapter 20. Um, but he says, it's been used in a way that proves you don't understand the depths of that law. It's been used in a way that actually is very often, it's used in such a way that allows people to attempt to evade um, God's righteous standards because of the way they apply it. Now, under the law, under the old, old covenant law of the Jews, the, the seventh commandment was particularly the sin of a married man sleeping with a married woman. It was punishable by death. That was the, the sin, right? That was, that's why it, it, it was the breaking of a law. Now, we don't really have laws on adultery in many societies today. I think you do, perhaps in uh, Islamic parts of the world, you have more, um, uh, you have, yeah, laws that are far more uh, glaring as far as dealing with adultery and, we, and so on. You have, by implication, you have laws on adultery, even in, the, even in our, our, our country, but explicitly so. You don't really have, at least in the West, you hardly have anyone regulating uh, laws on adultery like that. But in the Old Covenant, they did. There's, there's, there's regulation for adultery. A, a married, two married folks, married man couldn't sleep with a married wife. A married woman, he would be, they, they would be, um, they would be killed. That was the punishment. I hear some of you were calling for, wondering for, about the death penalty uh, just the other day. Anyway, you could, um, that would be the consequences. So it was, it was a violation of the law. You broke the law when you did that. Um, and so basically what these folks said was, well, I'm, I, I would never sleep with someone else's wife. You can imagine the Pharisees saying, we don't sleep with other, don't, I've never slept with another woman's wife. And they would, they would, Another, sorry, another person's wife, they would look down on that kind of person. Shame to that kind of person. You, you're not religious. And they would look down on the Gentiles because the Gentiles didn't have those kind of practices. They would look, like, look down on other nations that were far more, um, I don't want to call it liberal, but yeah, maybe more, more liberal in the approach to this, who wouldn't have these kind of constraints. And they would they'd look at themselves as the righteous ones. And Jesus Christ says, do you think that God just requires that you obey or that you're pure in the area of sexuality just in that one area? Do you think that God's concern as far as sexual purity is concerned is just for, just applies to married people, for example? Do you think that God is okay with married men sleeping with unmarried women? Do you think God is okay with men who use prostitutes? Do you think God is okay with unmarried men and women who are sleeping with each other? Do you think God is okay with that? Do you, you've misunderstood God's high standards, God's holiness. You've misunderstood the righteousness of God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, yes, adultery is a sin. Christ is not denying that. 
But so are the movements of the heart that lead to adultery. So are the intentions, the thoughts, the desire that have to fester and take place and boil over before someone falls into that kind of extreme sin. Jesus Christ says, just the presence of that sort of perverted desire, sinful desire, is evidence that you are an adulterer yourself. Adultery starts in the heart. And that's something that's always uh, at the forefront of how Jesus Christ deals with, with the laws. One of the things Christ says is, you can see the superiority of how Jesus Christ interprets and teaches the law because he deals right in the heart, the place where God can see. Adultery starts from the heart. Sexual immorality starts from the heart. Sexual impurity is an issue of the heart. It's not primarily a matter of external factors. It's never just a matter of external factors. Um, it's not the, the matter of how the, she was dressed. Right? These, there's an obsession, perhaps sometimes, with modesty in the church that actually is the fruit of men thinking that the reason for their sin or their struggles with sexual sin is how women dress. When, when you see someone who is uh, obsessed with external factors as to why they've committed sexual sin, that person is not serious about dealing with sexual purity. It's the heart, it's from here, it's from within. It's a perverted, perverted desire. It's here that there's something wrong. Now, this is not merely sexual attraction. That's not what Christ is saying. He's not saying being attracted to people. He's not saying that's a natural thing. He's talking about the abuse of that desire. He's talking about the failure to control that desire. He's talking about allowing that desire to be perverted. That's adultery, Jesus Christ says. In God's eyes, that's a great, that's a great sin. The, the adulterer is just, just a matter of, of, of degree. He's at the highest degree, but it's the same kind of sin. And I should say at this point that although Jesus Christ phrases the commandment in this way, he's not referring, is he, to men only. When he says, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you look at a woman with a desire to... Um, to violate God's sexual law. You look at a woman and you don't have, not within the context of how God regulates what we do with our sexual desire. He's not saying that this is something that only men do, right? Any more than when Jesus Christ says, if someone is angry with their brother, you then say, okay, that means only men can, only uh, if I'm angry with a sister, though, it's fine, but if I'm angry with a brother, it's a sin. No, it's, it's just a way of Christ framing um, the law in a way that we able to extract the right principle. We're meant to extract the principles from that. He's not saying that the sin only happens when a man lusts after a woman. Of course it happens when a woman lusts after a man. Neither is he saying that only men lust after a woman. Of course, Christ knows his disciples. Christ knows that his people struggle with sin. It's, it's not to men only, it's to those who are disciples and those who would be disciples. Jesus Christ says, this is my law, this is my kingdom. This is the purity that abounds here. This is the righteousness. But Christ says, if you, if you live that way, if you, if you, if, when you have sexually 
impure desires. And, and I should say at this point that uh, contrary to what a lot of people like to say, you see how Christ is framing his understanding of sexual sin in the context of the, 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 the ancient teaching of the Bible on, 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 on sexual ethics, or the Bible's ancient sexual ethics. That is, Christ conceives of sexual sin as a violation or wherever there is there, there's sexual act outside the context of the lifelong commitment of marriage. So sexual lust directed at a woman who is not your wife is a sin, is adultery, and adultery is marital language. Jesus Christ calls sexually impure thoughts Sexual sin is, the, is, is adultery. Now, adultery is, is, is marriage language. So Christ is thinking, he's constrained, he is, he's bound by the ancient teaching of the Bible on marriage. That's how Christ thinks of sexuality and sexual purity. Marriage is the only place, is the only, is the, is, is the only place where sexual acts are appropriate. Where, where, where sex is beautiful, where sex is acceptable, where sex is pure, outside of marriage. So Jesus Christ is not with the Methodist church who wanted to defend cohabitation the other day. That's, Jesus doesn't know that. He doesn't, he doesn't, that's, that's not Christ's word. They can proclaim their word, but it's not Christ's word. Christ, is, Christ thinks in the context of marriage. We, we have to decide if we want to think like Jesus or not. But this is how he thinks. That's what sexual sin is. Sexual sin is violating the, the boundaries that God has placed around um, the sexual union. And that pri- the primary boundary is, is that it happens in the context of marriage. Jesus Christ says that your sin, your violation of this principle comes from the state of your heart. It's not because of how someone is dressed. Neither is it because you've been single for such a long time. It's the heart that's the issue. And so Christ causes us to pause and say, am I an adulterer? Think of the shame that's attached to the sin of adultery, right? Um, When we find out that a man leaves his marital bed, spends months building a relationship with a woman who's not his wife till it leads to the point of adultery. He sleeps with a woman who's not his wife. Look how much we lose respect for that man. Look how much my sisters say, here we go again. These men are trash. <laughs> I say amen to that, actually, absolutely. The, 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 the records are, you can't, the evidence is too clear. You, you, people, can, you, can you trust them? Are there men that don't cheat, we say? Right? Is that even a thing? So, so it's a shameful thing. It's embarrassing. Even in a world where they, 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 they don't fall in line with Christ's sexual ethic, it's a shame. You know, pe- people might not be Christians, but if you're going to marry someone and you say you're going to get married, then that's your business. Once you've, you've decided to make this lifelong commitment... If you then try and, if you decide to be unfaithful, the heartlessness, think of all the things that move you to feel that way. The lack of integrity, the lack of faithfulness, the lack of self-control. Keep yourself together, have some discipline, are you a child? All those things. Jesus Christ says, 
Apply that to yourself next time you allow yourself to engage in sexual impurity just in the mind. Apply that to yourself. Think of it. When a lustful desire for someone else occupies your thoughts. Apply that to yourself when as a a married Christian man or woman, you are you, you, you lust, you think lustfully about another married person. Apply that to yourself when you are, are, are violating God's commands for sexual purity because you are in a fornic- you're fornicating in a relationship or, or because you are, you are lustfully, lustfully um, engaging in lustful thoughts, whether it's because of the things you allow yourself to read, the things you allow yourself, that you choose to watch, the things you allow yourself to, feel, yourself to feel, the boundaries you refuse to place. Apply that to yourself when you, are, when you know you're caught up in a, in a pornography addiction and you're feeding your lusts. Christ says, you see the shame of the act? Be, be, be careful because before you point your finger at the adulterer. Again, uh, the other day, the whole nation was pointing a finger at an adulterer. Look at him. He pointed the finger at the adulterer. Jesus Christ said, how did they say it? The force, force pointing back at you? Christ says that. Just be careful. Before the living God, are you an adulterer? You say, I would never commit adultery. I would never do that. I would never sleep with a, a, a man that's not my husband. I can never do that. Jesus Christ says, be careful. Are you an adulterer? Have you experienced the same thoughts, same desires that move that person to do what you shame them for? We all have. And the only difference between us and them is that we, for whatever reason, didn't carry out the act. We were blocked from the act. But we are not pure before God. The only difference between them is between us, each other, we, yeah, you're worse than me, okay. But before God, we're guilty. And who's gonna, ju- who's gonna argue with the judgments of God? God? God calls us adulterous for that. The, the greed that moves adultery, right? Um, the, the lack of contentment. In fact, Jesus Christ seems to be comparing the seventh commandment with, with the tenth commandment when he says, if you look after a woman with lustful intent. Now, now the word for, for lust in the Bible is the word that just means desire. It's not necessarily intrinsically sinful, although a significant number of times in the New Testament it's, it's addressing the sinful part, but very often it can, so 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 says, if anyone desires the office of an elder, it's just a desire, that's a longing for something. I long for you, God, we say. But the, but, but the misplaced desire, sexual desire, misplaced sexual desire is what Jesus Christ has in mind here. Now, now, the covetousness, the greed, that this person is not satisfied with God's blessings, which is why they now pursue, uh, um, uh, um, they pursue sexual companionship outside of their marriage, that greed, that means you can't, that means you can't trust this person. Christ says is exactly what's at root, what's at heart in us, or what's at work in our hearts whenever we violate sexual, the sexual, um, God's, God's law on, on sexuality. Whenever we think lustfully, the selfishness, you think of a man who, who, who risks his whole, the well-being of his home 
just because he wants to satisfy some sexual desire. And you say, how incredibly selfish that you, you tore this woman's, you've torn this woman's life apart. You've made her, how selfish of you. That's exactly what's at heart. When we are in the throes of sexual sin, when we're lusting, the ungratefulness, a man that says, God hasn't given me enough, I have to. The lack of integrity, the, the lack of faithfulness. That's why the Bible says, in James, James says, those who are worldly are like adulterers. They, they, they're not faithful, they have no integrity. The, the lack of self-control, the lack of discipline that you show by doing that. All those things are present also in your heart, even though you haven't committed the very act of adultery, but just because God sees the way you're thinking, the way you're desiring. Before I move on, I'll say this. You see that Jesus Christ, though, understands your sin. He understands your sin. He knows, unlike the world around you, this is an issue of your heart. And that's, a, that's a, at some levels a good thing. It's a convicting thing, but it's a good thing to know Jesus understands. Jesus is not like the church when, we're, when we are at our prudish worst and, and we, we don't give people, and there's no space to discuss these things. There's no, confess, no, no space to confess that this is who I am. This is what I go through. Christ is not like that. He, he understands our sin. He's not like the world either. The world, in an attempt to avoid the guilt it feels for breaking God's law, says, you know what, we're going to cover this sin by denying it. We're going to cover this guilt by denial and say, actually, these, these, these lustful desires we have are beautiful. Uh, they, 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 they'll, they'll say, well, this, this promiscuity that we now are praising is, is female empowerment, they'll say. Anything to, to, to deny their guilt. Christ doesn't do that either. He warns you, this makes you an adulterer. But he, but he knows your heart. You, you're not, there's nothing to hide from him. He, he, he sees it. He, he's seen the worst of it. He, he died for it. It's not Jesus you should hide this from. If you go to church and church makes you feel like hiding your sin, like this sin is something you just can't help, let me just say, this is one of the few times I'll say this, that's church's problem. Church has an issue, not Jesus. He understands sin. He understands where it comes from. Second thing, though, is challenges, Christ challenges our understanding of the seriousness of the sin of lust. Right? Now, as I said, in challenging our understanding, he already challenges the ser- our understanding of his seriousness. Because by telling us, actually, it's more than just the physical act, it's even the state of your heart and how you look at other people and how you f- the way you interact with people and what's, what's in your mind when you do this and, and your desires towards them. That really makes it more serious than we usually conceive of. But, but, but he, he also shows us, and, I, and I'll use a grid I applied last week, in telling us that this is a violation of the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? By saying to us, it's not just about the act. It's even how you look at people how you think towards them, how you feel towards them. Jesus Christ rebukes the way that we objectify each other. He rebukes the way, he shows us that it's a serious thing uh, that, that we don't act in purity towards each other. The Apostle Paul would echo this 
In, in Romans 13, he, he says, you owe no one anything except to love each other. That's the right way to live towards your neighbor is to love them. The second great commandment is to love your neighbor, to live towards them with, with grace, grace, with the best intentions, and so on. He says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. What that means is, the reason that we lust towards each other, the reason that we, 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 we live that way towards each other is because at root, we are hateful of each other. And here's the point. Lust is bound to ruin relationships then because hate ruins relationships. And I'll, I'll say this practically speaking. We can deceive ourselves as much as we want. If someone is lusting after you or lusting with you, claiming to be love, it's an act of hatred. Now, now, love is not perfect, right? So there might be other times where we do things that are actually acts of love. But that very act there is an act of hatred. Let, let me, let me like explain. If you are in a relationship, say you have a boyfriend or coach, whatever you, you call it, and the, the, you, you convince each other that because you love yourselves, you should violate the sacredness of of a marital bed by sleeping with each other or by engaging in sexual sin, you are hating each other. What you do at that point is you actually, because you might be doing that and you're planning to get married. Now you have to say to yourself, should we be getting married? Because I thought it was people who loved each other that would get married, but we're hating each other right now. We don't have the integrity to guard ourselves in this area. We don't have the faithfulness. We don't have the self-control. Right? We, don't, we don't have the concern. Christ shows us the seriousness of the sin, the, the seriousness of brothers and sisters in a congregation not working on the purity of their minds and thinking lustfully towards each other. And I've just given an example of where that becomes physical, but even without it being physical, if you go around in your, in your congregation, if you go around in life, treating people these, this way, judging people according to the way they look, and, 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 and just treating them as objects, you demean them. Once, that's your, once a lustful approach to life is your approach to everything, especially to intersex relationships, if a lustful approach to life is your approach to everything, every time you're lusting, you demean someone, you're demeaning them, you will never treat that person with the value that they deserve. You can kid yourself all you want. Lust is dangerous for the, for the second commandment. Jesus Christ says, my people shouldn't even look. So, so this person's even look, not, not even going to know, per se. But, but if I want to be loving towards people, I, shouldn't even, I, should, I should strive to not even look at someone with lustful intent. But the second thing, of course, another thing, so sorry, second thing is that it, it violates the first great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Of course, as far as the seriousness of the sin, and we're going to look at this in a moment, you can see how serious sexual sin is by the, the recommendation Christ is going to make for how to deal with it. How do you deal with sexual sin? Christ says, at least he says here, get ready to, if you need to, get ready to, to get rid of an eyeball and chuck it out. Get ready to cut off a right hand, right? That's the seriousness. It's so serious, you cannot afford to allow it to fester. But, but Christ also tells us 
that sexual sin puts us at risk of God's judgment. Allowing ourselves to live sexually impure lives is a matter of heaven and hell. It's why the church cannot be silent, say, for example, on the matter of homosexuality or, 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 or lesbianism and so on, because it is a matter of life and hell. I cannot offer you Jesus and eternal life as well as pleasure in your same-sex attraction. It cannot give you that. It's going to be one or the other. The same thing goes for all areas of our lives where we deal with our sexual impurity. Listen, I made a similar statement to this about anger. I say this about lust. The persistent, uncontrolled, unchallenged, unchanged lust is a sign that one is outside of the kingdom of grace. It is the pure in heart who will see God. And to be settled in our sinful lust is to show that we have not known the grace of God that we haven't seen the beauty of God's holiness, that your sexual desire is your God and you will perish with your idol. Jesus Christ says, if you don't cut off those hands, those eyes that are leading you to this sin, your body will be thrown in hell. There's judgment for this. God doesn't just, there's judgment. God judges us for our sin in this area. This is, the, the, this is the overall teaching of the Bible. Paul says similar things in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God? Sexual sin is a serious sin. Paul is even more expansive in 1 Corinthians 6. When he says, he says something like, there's no sin like sexual sin. There is something unique about sexual sins. Now, in general, it's not easy to to place sins on scale, like what's the worst sin you can commit? When I say that, first of all, that means you can throw out of your, any idea that you have that all sins are the same, it's not true, it's nonsense, it's not biblical, the Bible doesn't say that. Not all sins are the same, right? It's not like, if I killed someone yesterday and and came to preach for you this morning, you wouldn't stand here listening. If I told you, I had an argument with someone in Sainsbury's, you might be like, hey, pastor, fix up, but you, you, you forgive me. But you see, the sins are different, sins are different. I don't know how you could rank them, but sexual sin is very high. It's very high. You don't play with that sin. There's no sin we should play with. There's no sin we should toy with. But this sin, this is a zero tolerance policy. But ultimately, Christ says, it's because you stand before a judge. You know, there's a lot of discussions in the world today about whether legal systems should, should legislate for sexual sins. You know, and, and whether there should be, that you should, you should make this illegal to, 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 be, to, to do this sexual act or to have, there's a discussions around that. Christ says, ultimately, it doesn't even matter because there's a greater judgment. Judgment before God. That's, there's a greater judgment for that. Do we realize the seriousness of this sin? There's no, can't be in the kingdom if we live in that sin. We have no place in Christ's kingdom. And the last thing is, he asks us to seek the solution. He encourages us, he challenges us to deal with our lust. Christ doesn't allow his people to stay in that sin, to stay in their sin. Doesn't allow that we have to deal with our sin if we're going to be part of Christ's kingdom. Notice, please, just the balance, how balanced our Lord is in the treatment of this sin. And I'll say this in the end, I'll say this to you again. Jesus Christ can really deal with your sin. 
He can deal with your lust. And I have to say that because I know lust is very, it's a private sin. Many of us, we, 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 we think we're really an open book. We count ourselves, we, we, we pride ourselves on being open books. I'm very open. I tell people what I go through. I guarantee you that person doesn't tell you their lusts. I guarantee we're not so open with our lust, right? Oh, I, I, I cut someone off in traffic. I'll tell you that. Uh, you know, uh, I, I was late. Oh, I, I have bad timing. I'm really bad at time. I'll tell you. That. Many other sins will tell people. This one, this perverted desire that we feel that we sometimes have, these sinful desires, I bet you we don't go around just spreading that everywhere. But Jesus can deal with that sin. One of the reasons we don't do that is because we don't trust people. And in one sense, rightly so. We don't trust people to treat us with the same respect that they treated us with before we told them. We don't trust people to give us the right counsel. We don't trust people to be gracious and not judgmental. We don't trust people to not even take our business and spread it out there and and cause us even more harm than before we disclose that. For those reasons, I I 100% understand why you don't tell people. I'm praying that you might find people who reflect the kind of Christ-likeness that gives you the confidence to tell them. But I'm telling you, you can tell Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, he knows. He understands. He really knows how to deal with this. Don't listen to the world. They, they, think they, they think they have it all figured out. They make a lot of noise. They don't know how to deal with the lust, but they build a movement from it. A, we have a movement, Right? And so they convince you that they, know what they don't know what they're doing. They're lost. Jesus Christ, he can deal with this. I have to say that to you because it's, I understand that it's private. I understand that you're looking at me this morning knowing the things you're hiding that no one else can see. You're praying I can't see it. I can't see it. I don't want to see it. You don't want to see me either. But Jesus knows. We take it to him. But our Lord is balanced. Because up till now, I've said, and, and Christ agrees, Sin, lust is about the heart. Deal with the heart, deal with the heart. Yes. But then someone could then take that and say, if it's a matter of the heart, then it doesn't matter what I do with my body then. Like, it's just my heart. It doesn't matter where I place myself, what I watch, what I listen to, what I read. I don't have to worry about that. Just my heart, my heart, until I can do everything. Christ says, no. There is something unique about sexual sin that requires us to get serious about disciplining our bodies. He's not denying that it's a heart issue, but the evidence that you're dealing with the heart is, and that your heart is in the right place is the approach and the steps you begin to take to deal with the relationship with how your body almost deceives and manipulates the heart. Jesus Christ says, notice he picks, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin. Now this saying, it's a saying, Verses 29 and 30 are sayings that Christ has used at other points. But in particular here, he almost, he, 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 he changes it a bit to, to, to make it useful for purpose. In another passage, for example, in the New Testament, Christ says, if your right foot, here he chooses your right eye because he knows that very often the eyes are the place, the avenue for us to fall into these sins. He chooses your right hand. The right position is in, in, the, in the scriptures is the position of preciousness. So your most, Jesus Christ says, whatever is most precious to you, you have to be ready to get rid of so you can deal with your sexual sin. You have to be ready to go 
as far as you need to go to deal with your sexual sin. He's not actually preaching mutilation. He's not saying cut yourself, your body parts off. That's not the point, because you can do that and still struggle with sexual sin. So that can't be the solution. Christ is saying there has to be a radical approach to dealing with lust. You must spare no cost to deal with and get to the root of your sin. It will cost you, right? You can't be careless about it. You have, you're going to have to take note of what you watch and what you listen to and the things that put you in a position of temptation. You have to be honest about it. You can't keep reading those magazines and saying, well, you know, every time I read them, I stumble. But, you know, it's just my heart. No, Christ, you, you chuck the magazine away. It's, it's, it's the beginning. It's a step to being serious about, serious about your sin. So listen to uh, Joe Beakey preach a sermon this morning. And Joe Beakey said, he said, that he was saying how he'd never had a TV. He's probably, what, in his 60s now. He'd never had his TV his whole life. I never have a TV because I'm worried about how it's going to affect my, 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 my struggle with lust. And he says, I just decided not to have one. And he, says, he said, it's not because I'm good that I don't have a TV. It's because of how bad I am. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a TV. I'm not, not saying, me personally, I was watching England yesterday. I'm not saying you, should have a, you shouldn't have a TV. But you may have to go that far how serious about, are, you, are you about dealing with sexual sin? It's a serious thing. It costs, it costs a lot. But Jesus Christ says, you would rather lose the stuff of this life than lose your soul. You'd rather lose ease for a few moments than lose your soul. But spare no cost to deal with your sin. Seek help. If it's a sin that you've been harboring deep inside and you know exposure is going to help at some level, then do that. Confess to someone. Be accountable to someone. Cut things off. Include Whatever you have to do, but do not, Christ says, surrender to the sin. Don't settle for it. Friends, doesn't Jesus Christ show you again that he knows how to deal with your sin? Isn't it true? that you know deep down inside that it requires a certain ruthlessness to deal or or to escape the grip of sinful lust. We have to be serious about seeking this solution for our sin. Let me close this morning by just saying this. If you've heard the sermon this morning and you feel quite helpless, like there's nothing you can do to be pure, then actually it's quite possible that you're hearing me well. To obey what Christ is saying here, to live a life that's pure, to not have to be burdened by the reality that a lustful thought makes me as bad as an adulterer, to live in that reality, you need a greater righteousness. This cannot come from anything you or I do. It can't come from how well we're raised. It can't come from the integrity we think we have. Just can't. Can't come from a million resolutions. You need greater help. You need a greater righteousness. And I think it's fair to say at this point, this is one of those times where Jesus Christ, he's speaking to us this way so that we can run to him. It's sad because some of us are going to think the other way around. Some people think Christ's standards are so high, I need to run from him. No, he's saying that. So you see, you have no other option or other help in this world. Only Christ can purify you. Only Christ can cleanse you. Come to Jesus for cleansing. You can cover it up with denial. 
You can cover it up by saying, you know what, this is just nature, and what Jesus is asking for is simply not consistent with the way someone acts naturally, so I'm just going to carry on. You can cover it up with that. That only lasts for a while. Very soon, the winds of God's judgment will blow and expose you. Or you can choose to cover it with the blood of Jesus and say, Jesus Christ can cleanse me. He can make me whole. And say, as we just sang, false and full of sin. I'm full of sin. I'm full of lust. I'm an adulterer. But you are full of truth and grace. And say, I see now, Jesus, why you say you're the way, the truth, and the life. I see why you had to die for sin. Because apart from you, we are in ruin. And you can run to Jesus and fall on him and let him cleanse you. And the other thing I will say this morning is that not only does Jesus Christ give you the grace that you need to cover the guilt we all feel for our sins so that we don't have to lie to ourselves, he also gives you the strength to do what he commands. You know, the, the constant almost refrain in this section of Matthew 5 is, but I say to you, that's a master talking. He's commanding, he has power. Now the, the question is, do you want you be a slave to something and not, very few things are clearly slave masters as our lusts. If you've ever been in the grip of lust, you know that lust is a, a slave master. It drives you when you don't want to. It wakes you up when you don't want to be awake. It makes you do things you don't want to do. It makes you feel ways you don't want to feel. It intrudes in your mind and your thoughts when you haven't even invited it in. It's a master. And Jesus Christ says, would you be a slave to your sin or a slave to righteousness? The Jesus who says, I say to you, is he's a master. You can surrender to him and he'll give you authority over lust. He'll give you power over lust. He'll help you walk in righteousness, but don't give in to your sin. Don't choose your sin. There's no reason for you to do that. It's not like you say, well, I, I would have chosen Jesus, but if he knew what I did, he, he knows what you did, and he died for sin. But, but the thing is, Christ fixes this addiction you have to your sinful lust by showing you that there is a far more greater desire, a far purer des- desire than the desire you have for your lust. Then, then desire you feel because you have sexual, sexual, uh, sexual lust. That desire you feel, you think it's the, the thing you need the most, it's not. There's no desire like serving Jesus Christ. No desire like Christ. There's nothing as pure, nothing as supreme as following Jesus Christ. This morning, you can forsake your lusts and follow after Jesus. Because in the end, only Jesus Christ can truly satisfy. Amen.